Good evening, everybody. It is good to see y'all. I know we'll have more. Join us in just a second as they drop their kids off at class, but I'm so glad that everybody's here. We're going to go ahead and start with the prayer, and then we'll jump into our class for tonight. Most Holy Father, we, we are indeed thankful to be able to have an audience with you, to be able to come before your throne of grace, to know that you hear us and that you love us and that we are your people because of what Jesus has done for us because of the presence of your spirit within us. And Father, we thank you for that privilege and honor. And Father, we pray that you help us to live every day in awe and in gratitude of who you are and of what you've done and what you have promised to do for us, Father. We pray that we may share those blessings with others. Help us, Father, to share the good news of Jesus with our community and with our world. Father, we pray that you help us to live and work in a way that reflects your glory and your love into the world. Father, thank you for your son, and thank you for allowing us to be here tonight and to study and to think about who you are and what you've done. And Father, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Okay, so we have been talking about the attributes of God, the characteristics of God, who God is, who is the Lord, and just kind of walking through various uh, um, areas and attributes and characteristics of God. And every week we like to start with just a brief discussion question because obviously the environment and the size of the room and various things makes it hard for too many discussion questions. But um, if you ha ever have anything as we go, don't, don't hesitate to yell at me or throw something at me. So, um, and we, we can stop along the way, but we like to start at least with the discussion question. As we talk about the love of God and God being love and God loving, what's, let's talk about love for just a second. And what are some of the various ways that we use the word love? Obviously in Greek and in Hebrew, there, there are different connotations and meanings. And in fact, in Greek, there are various words that are all translated as love. The word we most translator that we'll talk about tonight being love is agape, but when we use the English word love, what are some of the various ways we use that word? Because we use it in kind of radically different ways sometimes, don't we? What are some of the various ways we use the word love? Love languages. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's very good. And in some of the ways that, that people interpret love or feel love like acts of service or or time together yeah quality time yeah very good I like that yeah there we have love languages good ice cream absolutely yeah so it's funny we talk about love within the context of relationships like the love languages and then we talk about love when it comes to something like we like like food that we enjoy eating so we say we love pizza we love hamburgers we love ice cream what else do we say we love? How else do we use the word love? Yes, yeah. So, so we, can, we can use it for like an extreme version of like. So we, we like something and then we love something. Yeah, it's like the next step. And, and yeah, maybe we, we overuse it and, and it, it loses some of its meaning. So when we tell someone, I love you, but we also say to a bowl of ice cream, I love you, and so it's hard for us to tell, well, wait, if you love the ice cream, what does that mean about me? Or if you love me, then what does that mean about ice cream? So, yeah, so maybe we, we overuse it or we use it in, in various ways. What else? Yeah. 
Oh, very good. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we use it as something that we do, and, and then other times we talk about it as a noun, so something that we maybe feel or something that, that is. Yeah, absolutely. We use it in a, in a verb form and a noun form. That's really good, which is also true in Greek, by the way. And even when we talk about agape, we could talk about it as a noun or we can talk about it as a verb. Good. That was a distinction my mom always made growing up was that love isn't something that you feel, but it's something that you do. And so, but I, I think we, we do. We talk about it in both, in both ways as something that we feel and something that we do. Anything else you think of? And, and we even, even within relationships, we kind of lumped all of those together. Even within relationships, we use it very differently, don't we? So we could tell our kids that we love them, but then we might tell a spouse or somebody that we're dating that we love them, and that's a different kind of love than the love that we have for our kids. And then even outside of our family, we might tell a friend that we love them, or I get up every Sunday and tell the congregation, I love you, and that love is real, but it's different than the love I have for my wife or the love that I have for my kids. And so we have different relational types of love. Anything else anybody can think of before we go on? Okay, so when we say that God loves, using it as a verb, that God loves, what are we saying about God? And what are we saying about love? Well, at least a couple of things. We're saying, one, that God is personal, right? That God is personal. He's not an impersonal force, right? God isn't a force because an impersonal force that just isn't a person or isn't personal cannot Love. So when we say that God loves, we're saying that God is a personal God. And we're also saying that God is relational, that God interacts with people in a relational way, as opposed to maybe a lot of different things, but at least as opposed to transactional, right? When, when a, a vending machine gives me a, a soda or gives me a candy bar, I'm in Texas, I apologize, I shouldn't have said soda. When the vending machine gives me a Coke, uh, then I, I'm not, uh, the, the, the vending machine doesn't love me, right? Or, or even if I go to a restaurant and I pay for my meal and they give me my food, they don't love me. It's not relational. They're not bringing me food because they feel a certain way about me or because they're committed to me. It's transactional, right? I give them money, they give me food. It's a transaction. And so when we say that God loves us, we're saying that God is a relational God, that he relates to us on a relational level, not on a transactional level. And that's very different than the way a lot of ancient people thought about their gods, isn't it? That they didn't think about their gods in a relational sort of way. It was more transactional. I do X, Y, and Z, and God does this for me, or this God does that for me, or I want to keep this God happy, or I want to make sure that I have a safe trip, so I need to make sure I sacrifice this, or I want to make sure that my crops grow, and so I'm going to I'm going to sacrifice these sacrifices to make sure that I make this God happy and I have crops and I have children and I have love and I have all of these things. And so they thought of their gods in a transactional way. They didn't think about their gods in a way that says, my God loves me. But our God, Yahweh God, is a God who loves his people and who relates to them in a relational way, in a way that's different. God's love is, as we talked about last week, God's love is holy. And when we say holy, that God is holy, or his love is holy, what does holy mean? 
otherly, right? Different, yeah, set apart, different than, different than us, right? So God's love even is holy. God's love is different than our love. It's better than our love. It's higher than our love. It's more majestic than our love. And so you could relate it to our love, but it's even greater than any love that we could understand or comprehend. God's love is incomprehensible, but God is a relational God. He is a personal God. So when we say that God loves, we're saying something rather profound, rather different than the ancient people might have thought about their gods. Look at the book of Hosea, because Hosea gives us several metaphors about God and his people. And of course, like the other prophets, Hosea is, he is rebuking the people of his day. He is chastising the people of his day on behalf of God, telling them how unfaithful that they've been, but also reminding them about God's love for them. Now, do you remember what God told Hosea to do? What did God told Hosea to marry what kind of a woman? A prostitute. He told Hosea to marry a prostitute. Why? Because Hosea was going to be a living parable about God's relationship with Israel, right? God's relationship with Israel was like a man who was married to an unfaithful woman. Not just unfaithful, because that doesn't go far enough. A prostitute, a wife of whoredom. And, and that's significant because God wanted them to know, even in his rebuke of them, even in his punishment of them, that his punishment for them, his rebuke of them, his chastising of them doesn't come from a transactional place. It wasn't that, hey, y'all didn't give me enough sacrifices this year. You didn't sacrifice nearly enough to me, and so therefore I'm going to withhold my blessings. Nope. It wasn't a transactional punishment. You didn't do enough for me. You didn't serve me enough. You, you didn't do these things on my behalf. No, it was a relational punishment. Even his punishment and his rebuke of them reflects the fact that he loves them and that his love for them is relational. And he says, it's not like you didn't put enough money in the vending machine. It's not like you didn't give me enough sacrifices. I don't need your sacrifices anyway. It's that you didn't love me and that you gave your loyalty and your faith and your trust and your everything, your heart to these other gods, to these transactional gods. I loved you. I was supposed to be like a husband to you, but you were like a wife of whoredom to me. You were like a prostitute and you sold yourself to these other nations and to these other gods. Look at Hosea chapter 2. But even after he rebukes them and tells them how unfaithful they've been, he still says, but I can't be done with you. I want you back. And there's going to be a day where I restore you to myself. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And just like uh, Hosea's relationship with Gomer and how she went away from him and was unfaithful to him, but yet he bought her back and brought her home, God says, that's exactly how I'm going to be with Israel. And yes, She's going to be punished for her unfaithfulness, but I want to bring her back. I'm going to allure her and speak tenderly to her. I'm going to woo her back. I mean, what kind of a God talks that way about a people that have treated God the way that, he, that Israel treated God? 
What kind, of a, what kind of a husband would do that for a wife who treated her husband the way Israel treated God? This is a God of such holy love, such intense love, such, such incomprehensible love that says, I want a relationship with this people. I have a plan for this people. I want to be back in covenant with this people. And as stubborn as they are and as unfaithful as they are, I'm going to keep on. I'm going to keep on whatever it takes to have a relationship with Israel and I will woo her back. But again, think about the terms that are used. Again, it's not just, this is my plan, I'm going to do it like he's a robot or something, or like Israel is a robot, or this is just step one, step two, procedural. It's relational, like a man that wants a relationship desperately with a wife who has been unfaithful. That's the way God feels about Israel. And I think that's an appropriate word too, isn't it? Feels. Love and relationships are sometimes logical. And it's not to say God isn't logical, but it's also emotional. And there's emotion tied to all of this. And sometimes I think that we don't give God enough credit as far as the emotions go. Verse 16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. You'll call me my husband and no more will you worship these, these idols and I'll abolish war and swords and bows. And I'll, it's really describing the renewal of vows, right? And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And maybe you've seen that. Maybe even you've experienced that. There's been a marriage with some rocky days and, and maybe even, you know, maybe even the, the marriage almost ended, the relationship almost ended, but there was reconciliation and, and there was renewing. And then there's even like a, a moment where they say, the couple says, I want to renew our vows in public. I want to have another ceremony where we renew our love for each other. And that's what God is describing with Israel. And he's saying, there's going to come a day where I renew my vows with Israel and Israel renews her vows with me and we recommit ourselves to one another. And that's what happened in Christ, isn't it? As we look forward to the gospel, that's what, that's what has happened in Christ. And not just with Israel, but with Jews and Gentiles, with all of us. All of us who were even more unfaithful than Israel. It's one thing for us to point at Israel and say, look how unfaithful you were. Well, the, the Gentile nations were even more unfaithful to God than that. They had spent even longer worshiping false gods and he says, I'm going to renew my love and my covenant with all people. But here specifically, he's talking about Israel. Verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Again, do we see the kind of language that's being used? And then recognizing that this is what's true in Jesus for us. This is the kind of God that he is. That he doesn't just interact with his people like a master and a slave. He could. 
right? I mean, he's God. He's the creator. He could react with, he could interact with the people in any way he chooses. He could interact with humans as if we are just slaves to him or as if we're just nothing to him, as if we're just ants to him. But he doesn't. He interacts with people as if we are his bride. And he says, I want covenant relationship with you. I want to be in this where I betroth you to me forever. And that's what love does, doesn't it? Love binds itself to someone else. That's what we do when we love someone is we bind ourselves to that person. And we say, I want to belong to you. And does it in some sense limit us? Yeah, in some ways it limits us, but it also frees us. It's really a paradox, isn't it? The, the way that love binds itself to someone else and in that binding of ourselves to someone else, we find true freedom. And God knows that that's the only way that his people can find true freedom is if they bind themselves to him and he binds himself to them to be faithful to one another. Verse 21, and in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, meaning God will sow. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. If you remember, Hosea names one of his children, no mercy. And I will say to not my people, because he named his other child, not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. Again, it's a marriage renewal, isn't it? It's a marriage renewal. And he says, I'm going to renew my covenant with Israel, and it's going to be a marriage not just of God and Israel, but of heaven and earth, and all of the blessings, all of the blessings that come along with God and people being in harmony with each other will be experienced. See, God knows what's in people's best interest, and we don't sometimes do it. We don't recognize that what is in our best interest is to be in covenant relationship with God. And so throughout this book, God finds all different kinds of metaphors. Hosea uses all kinds of metaphors to remind the people that when you go astray and you go do your own thing, you think you're, you're going to be free. But what happens with Gomer? Do you remember the story? What happens with Gomer when she runs away from her husband? She ends up as a slave, and he buys her back. And that's what, that's what happens with us. That's what happens with all of us, that we think we're seeking freedom by running away from the love of God, but we're, we're really just finding ourselves in a different kind of slavery. And the only kind of bondage, if you want to put it that way, that is freeing, where we can be truly human and experience all of the blessings that heaven and earth have to offer is by being in covenant relationship with God because God knows that this is what's in humans' best interest is to be in relationship with him. And it's not just, he doesn't just put it in terms of a marriage relationship, he also puts it, puts it in terms of a, a parent-child relationship. Look at chapter 11. Hosea 11, starting in verse 1, he describes Israel like a child. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. He says, 
he's talking about the Exodus, right? He brings them out of Egypt and he says, it's just like a parent and a child. And I brought, I brought my child out of Egypt. And I called him my son, my son. And I brought him out. But the more I called to him and said, okay, son, follow me. I want to teach you. I want to teach you all the wonderful things about being my son. And I want to teach you how to talk. And I want to teach you how to walk just like any parent does with the child. And, and that's what the Torah is, what the law is. Torah means instruction. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is the instruction of Israel, like a parent instructing a child. Here's how you walk. Here's how you talk. Here's how you live your life. Here's how you get along. Here's the way to have the best human experience possible. And the more God calls to them, the more just like a disobedient, rebellious kid, Israel continues to go away. Verse 3. He said, yet it was I who I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. I I taught them how to walk. And yes, there's a yoke involved, but just like with Jesus, Jesus says, does he have a yoke for us, a, a yoke to put on our neck? Yes, but he says it's easy and it's light. And and these cords that God put on Israel, they were to teach Israel how to walk. They were for your own good because I was being like a parent to you. But you said, no, I don't want any of that. I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to learn how to walk. And you went your own way, even though I bent down and I fed them. Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, right? Assyria is going to come in and take Israel off into captivity because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gate, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And and the book of Hosea goes back and forth like this. And it's just like a relationship, isn't it? And God says, I'm done. I'm I'm so tired of you. You're so bent on doing your own thing. You're so rebellious. You're so unfaithful. I'm finished. You're not my people anymore. I'm not going to have mercy on you anymore. And then suddenly he says, but I can't. I can't do that. I can't do that. I love you too much to to let that happen. Look at the very next verse, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? Like, how can I treat you like Zeboim? These are some of the cities that God destroyed. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God wants to have mercy on them. God wants them to be saved. God wants them to be in covenant relationship with him. God wants what's in their best interest, just like a parent does with a child. Verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So again, Does God allow the destruction and the captivity and the exile to come on Israel and Judah? Yes. Why? Because he loves them. 
because his relationship with them is one that is relational. It's one that is personal. It is one of deep and profound love. He wants what's best for them. Now, if they decide they're bent, they are bent on doing things their own way, God says, okay, see how that works out for you. And, and sometimes we do that as parents, right? Sometimes we do that with our children and we say, okay, I've told you and told you and told you not to touch that. I've told you and told you and told you not to go there. And, and we say, you know what? You're going to get hurt and I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to let you, we don't want to let them get hurt, but then they get hurt a little bit. And then of course, what do we do? We rush in and we say, okay, we, we take them to ourselves. We, we comfort them. We, we, we put a bandaid on their, their injury and we say, okay, did you learn your lesson? We do it all because we love them. And that's what God is doing with Israel. Because I love you. Because I love you, I'm going to let you suffer the consequences of your decisions. But I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to keep calling you back to myself. I'm going to keep restoring you until one day, one day when I renew my vows to you and you're changed and the relationship is changed and heaven and earth are changed. And again, that's what we're experiencing, beginning to experience in Jesus Christ right now, right? And that's what we will experience for all eternity because of what God through Jesus has done for us, because of the way God feels, not just towards Israel, but towards all of his humans. God loves human beings. And I know that, I know that's like, oh, well, duh, West, God loves human beings. But Let's never get to the point where that's duh. Let's never get to the point where that seems obvious. That should give us goosebumps. God loves humans. That's amazing. It's amazing that God would be mindful of humans, so much so that the second person of the Godhead became human because he loves humans humans so very much because he loves Israel so much his son became Israel became the personification of Israel became the embodiment of Israel became an Israelite in order to redeem Israel became a son of Adam in order to redeem all the sons and daughters of Adam because God loves humans. But it isn't just that God loves so we've been talking about God loves but it goes beyond that God is love. It's, it's not just that God loves, but that God is love. That takes it to a whole nother level, doesn't it? Because we're, we're saying that love isn't just something that God does. It's something that God is. God is love. It is one of his defining characteristics. It is who God is. It's not just something that God does on occasion. Oh, God loved Israel. God decided to love Israel. God did this, and this was a loving thing to do. But God is love. It is who God is. It is one of his defining characteristics. Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Again, 
God is love. It's not just something that God does. It is something that God is. And he says, this is, this is even how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. See, that's the thing. If God is love, then you don't get to define what love is. I don't get to define what love is. The world doesn't get to define what love is. None of us get to define what love is. God defines what love is and what love is not. God defines what love is. This is how we know what love is, by looking at God. God teaches us what love is. Love is from him. He teaches us what love is. And more specifically, this is how we know what love is, is by looking at the cross. Not just by looking at God, but at looking at the gospel. The gospel teaches us this is what love is. This is what love is, that God loved us so much that he gave his only son that we might live. That's love. That's love right there. That's love. That is quintessential. That is the perfect example. That is the embodiment of love. If you want to know what love is, this is the love of God manifest that he so loved us that he gave his only son so that we might live through him. But then he, John also says there's so much packed in here. Not only is God love, so we know what love is by looking at God. Not only is the gospel the, the prime manifestation of the love of God, so we know what love is by looking at the gospel, but he also says love is from God. So that when we love one another, we are giving one another a gift that we originally received from whom? God. God gave it to us, and then we give it to each other because love is from God. God teaches us how to love. And when we love one another, and he says in chapter 3, in verse 16, kind of like John 3.16, 1 John 3.16 says, that we ought to lay down our lives for each other because that's what Jesus did for us. And when Jesus teaches us to love, God teaches us to love, and then we love one another, the love we give to each other is the gift that we originally received from God. So it is our gift to share with each other, and it's our mark that we are born of God. This is how you know that someone is a child of God is whether or not they love. If they don't love, they're not a child of God. Why? Because God is love. This is the family resemblance, right? You know families that all the kids kind of look alike and you're like, I know that you're a McAdams kid. That's not true with my boys necessarily. But you, know, you, you see some resemblance and you say, I can tell you're from this family. You have the family resemblance. In the family of God, it's not the way we look because we all look different. It's not the job we have because we all have different jobs. It's not, it's not what nationality, it's not what language. All of those things are different and diverse. But for John, he says, well, it's that you confess Jesus Christ as the Lord and it's that you love because that's the family resemblance. That's how you can tell that someone is born of God. This is how you bear the image of God. This is the family resemblance that you love. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I know that it's a big word, propitiation. It means an atoning sacrifice. And, and in the ancient world, who was it that made a propitiation? Who was it that made an atoning sacrifice? Gods or people? People, right? People made atoning sacrifices. The gods didn't make atoning sacrifices. You made an atoning sacrifice so that you could atone for your own sins and make nice with God so that God blesses you because it's a transactional relationship, right? So you, you make propitiation. God doesn't make propitiation on your behalf. You make propitiation on your own behalf. You make things right with your God so that your God blesses you. And John says, no, 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 this isn't the way love works with our God. And it's not the way love works in, in the church. The way we know love is that God first loved us. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And he made propitiation for our sins. We were the ones that did wrong. We were the ones that sinned. We're the ones that messed up. We're the ones that broke the relationship. We're the ones that were unfaithful. We're the ones that didn't respect him and didn't honor him and didn't glorify him and didn't worship him. And we gave our love and devotion to everything under the sun. And God says, I still want a relationship with human beings. And so he made propitiation for our sins. He made the sacrifice because we couldn't. What could we do to make ourselves right with God? Nothing. And so he made it right. He made himself right with us. He made us right with him. But theology can't just stay theoretical. It has to be practical, right? Theology can't just stay theoretical. It has to be practical, especially for John. He says, if God loved us this way, that when we messed up and we were sinners and we messed up the relationship, and then God said, you know what? I'll make it right. I'll make this right. I'll fix this. I'll bring us back together. He says, okay, what's the, what's the practical application of that? That we should love God in return? Yes, that's true. But also, more importantly to John's point here, is that we should love each other. We should love each other. If God loves us that way, then we ought to love each other that way. Which means that when someone else does something wrong to us, instead of saying, I'm not going to be friends with you again, I'm not going to be in relationship with you again until you make it right. Whoa, hold on, buddy. That's not what God did for you, is it? God sacrificed himself in order to be right with you. And John says, this is the kind of self-sacrificing love that we ought to have for each other that we're willing to do whatever it takes to keep us together and to keep in fellowship with each other. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. This is how we know. This is how we know. And, and I don't want to shortchange everything else the book says because John has a lot to say about stop sinning, like don't do that. And you can't say that you have fellowship with God while you continue in darkness. And you can't say you have fellowship with God if you deny that Jesus Christ is Lord. So those things are true as well. But for John, this love thing is pivotal because this is what God looks like. You, you've never seen God right? None of us have ever seen God, but you've seen love. And if you've seen love from other believers, if you've seen love within the church, if you're manifesting love within yourself, that, that right there, that, that glimpse of self-sacrificing love 
selfless love for each other, that's how you know that the Spirit of God is working in you. Paul would say it in Galatians 5, talking about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That, that right there, that's the fruit of the Spirit of God. This is the family resemblance. This is how you know that you are God's kids. This is how you know that you're God's children when you love each other. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And again, when we read the New Testament, love isn't just this theoretical pie-in-the-sky thing. I mean, Paul gets really specific, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, isn't rude, isn't self-seeking. I mean, very specific of what it looks like for John. 1 John 3.16, it looks like laying down our lives for each other. This is what it looks like. Love each other. And if you're not going to love each other, then don't say, don't say God's your father because God is love. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. I love that phrase. We'll come back to that. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I love this phrase. As he is, and how is he? What's his whole point? Loving. God is love. As he is, so also are we in this world. And the more his love is perfected in us, the more we are convinced of his love for us and the more we manifest that love towards one another and the more we love each other and the more the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control of the Father through the Spirit can be seen in us, the more confidence we have for the day of judgment. So that we're not... Oh no, I hope I'm saved. And when God, when Jesus comes back, I hope I'm saved. And I hope, wait, stop. You don't have to be afraid. You can have confidence because the love of God is being perfected in you. See, all you have to do is look at the fruit, right? You say, well, I'm not there yet. Okay, we're not there yet. Of course, we're not there yet. We're, we're walking in the light as he is in the light. And there's this continual forgiveness, but this is, this is the goal. This is what we've got to keep our eyes fixed on. And remember that this is what God looks like. And this is what God's relationship in us and through us and with us looks like in practical terms. What does it look like to be a Christian? I mean, what would we say to that? I and mean, what would we say to that? In fact, I mean, let me just say this. That my whole life, I've heard people ask questions like, well, is that a is that a sound congregation? That, that church over there that you're going to or that church over here, is, that, is this a sound congregation? And I know what they mean by that, right? Do they do all the right things? Do they believe all the right things? Are they doing all of these things? And, and maybe there's a good question there, but when the New Testament talks about soundness, the word sound actually means healthy. What does it mean to be a healthy congregation? 
Well, if this isn't part of it, if this isn't right at the heart of it, then I don't know what we're talking about. Because for John, John would say, I gotta spend the whole book nearly talking about this. This is what it looks like to be one of God's children, is love each other because God is love. Now that's not to discount anything else. Of course it's not to discount anything else or to minimize anything else, but it is to say that this has to be at the heart of our theology, what we think about God, and our ecclesiology, that's how we interact as the church. This has to be practical, how, what we live out. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, a lot of us sometimes will say things like, well, it's a lot easier to love God than it is to love people. I've probably said things like that too, right? It's easier to love God than it is to love people because people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm great, but everybody else, they're messed up, right? That's how we think, isn't it? We, we think we're great. Everybody else is difficult to get along with and they're hard to get along with and people are hard to love. And, and John says, actually, wait a second. You've never even seen God. You've never seen God, yet you say you love him. And he says, if you say you love God, but you don't love the people, you can actually see. You can see the tears in their eyes. You can see the things they're struggling with. You can see their needs. You can help them with the things they're struggling with. If you don't love them, yet you say you love God, then you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. And this hits me right where I live. How about you? This hits us right between the eyes. To say, this is what it looks like to be God's children. This is the family resemblance that we are supposed to always be reflecting into the world. As he is, so are we in the world. This is the way that it's supposed to be. And so this is what we've got to remember, that love is a defining characteristic of God and of his children. Love isn't just something that God does. It's something that God is. I wasn't even going to share this story. It just popped into my mind, but it's so incredibly appropriate. Somebody called me not too long ago and, and said to me that this person is married to an unbeliever, so much so this person is married to an atheist who is convinced there is no God. Um, but through the course of the conversation, they said that their atheist spouse knows very few loving Christians. And then they said, it's just something the church isn't very good at, loving. And I just, I laughed out loud. And I said, I'm sorry, isn't that ironic? That of all the things we might not be so great at, we're not great at shipbuilding, we're not great at this, we're not great at baseball, we're not great at football, we're not great at whatever. I mean, there's a lot of things we could not be good at, but that one, for anybody to think, the church isn't so great at love. That's the one. John says, you know, there, there could be other things you're not so great at, but this one, you can't, you can't not be great at that because that's what it looks like to be God's children. Love is a defining characteristic of God and it's a defining characteristic of his people. So we have to keep that at the forefront of our minds. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, we are...
humbled when we think of your love for us. That we were far from deserving, deserving only of wrath and deserving only of punishment, deserving of exile, deserving of death. But Father, even in our wretchedness and our sinfulness and our rebellion, you loved us and sacrificed your only son to redeem us to yourself. And Father, we are overwhelmed with gratitude and we pray, Father, that you help us to keep your love at the forefront of our minds, that we might learn to love one another. Father, we pray that we can reflect your love, that we can show ourselves to be your children, that we can love as you have first loved us. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for continuing to love us even when we struggle to love one another. Help us, Father, to remember to love you and to remember to love one another. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.